What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Mile Higher Podcast, episode 236. And today we have a very interesting episode for you all on a topic that I'm sure some of you have heard of, but maybe many of you have not. And there's just a lot of interesting information here that I feel like... A lot of controversy, too. Oh, yeah. Big time. And I think we're going to get into some interesting conversations today. We're going to be talking about the Silk Road and Ross Albrecht. And the dark web, really. Yeah. Because that's where a lot of this takes place. Some wild shit. We haven't really, you know, dove into the dark web too much here on Mile Higher. Mm -mm. Here and there. But but it's a... it's a topic that I think is hard for a lot of people to kind of wrap their minds around because, mm-hmm. you know, we all think of the internet as, you know, just being Google and these websites and everything, but not realizing that we're all of us on a daily basis only access like the top layer, the surface mm-hmm. layer of the internet. But the internet actually has deep, deep abysses within abysses. it that the average person can't access um, because that's where a lot of like governments, um, put their data and things like that in these other deeper layers. And so it wasn't until the U.S. Navy developed this browser called Tor or the Onion Router, which eventually became open source. And now anybody can download it. And through it, you can actually access these deeper layers or the dark net um, through it. And this is where the Silk Road existed and may still exist in uh, different forms. But there's a lot of things and a lot of good and bad things that reside there. And so today we're going to be taking a look at this marketplace that Ross Ulbricht created that allowed you to go on and much like an eBay or an Amazon, you could just log on through, you know, anybody was able to download this, this Tor browser, log in, get the address for the Silk Road. And once you got there, you could just go crazy, go shopping for all sorts of different drugs, weapons, basically body parts, basically all the things that would be highly regulated in normal society. You could then purchase through the Silk Road with Bitcoin. So this is going back to when Bitcoin first started, you know, first became uh, a public digital asset. And it's interesting because I, I come from a, technology background and around this time i was i was working for geek squad and i remember talking with many of my colleagues about the silk road and some of them would would mess around on there and i was always a little too paranoid because i was still you know i was still kind of into criminal justice and i was like ah you know there's a lot of iffy things there and you know i was always paranoid about being tracked down or um, you know going somewhere i wasn't supposed to and you know, they have, because I always knew that th- this place exists. And if we are all able to access it, guess who else is accessing it? Law enforcement. Mm-hmm. Law enforcement is all over the place on there. Yeah. And so as, you know, as a young, young man, it seems very cool to be able to go on there and be like, oh, I'm going to buy some drugs on there or buy, you know, some recreational, you know, buy weed back then before weed was legal. Yeah. And you could, and they would, it would get shipped to you through the mail and there was like a review process. And so Ross created the platform for this to exist. And now there's a lot of controversy of how much was he involved in the different trades that were going on there and sort of all the drama that unfolds as this thing grows. But this whole concept of Silk Road and the dark net is a very interesting one to me. And I'm very excited to dive into that today. Yeah, me too. 
So we're going to talk about how Ross started the Silk Road and how almost three years after it got launched, it was seized by the feds and he was arrested. It's a, like Josh said, a very controversial case. And we are super excited to hear what you guys think of it all. So let's just jump in here and talk a little bit more about Ross. So Ross William Ulbricht was born on March 27, 1988 in Austin, Texas to his parents, Lynn and Kirk Ulbricht. He had an older sister named Calla, and they all lived pretty normal lives in the suburbs of Austin. Growing up, he was a Boy Scout who earned the rank of Eagle Scout eventually. And Ross and his parents spent their summers building houses in Costa Rica, where he learned to surf. And in high school, his friends called him Rossman. He was a very free-spirited person, but also very smart. He was the sort of kid in high school who surfed and smoked a lot of weed, but still scored in the 98th percentile on his SATs. Jealous. Yeah. Amazing. Ross also got a scholarship to the University of Texas at Dallas, and he majored in physics, and naturally, he earned high marks. His hard work in college paid off with a scholarship to grad school at Penn State. And while he was there, he studied crystallography, which I did not even know this was a thing, but it's the study of atomic and molecular structure of crystals. And he started dating a girl named Julia while he was at Penn State. But he wasn't exactly thrilled to be doing lab research all the time, and he started to question whether or not he should switch fields. Instead of pursuing a scientific career, he was thinking about pivoting to something in economics. In college, Ross had a budding interest in Eastern philosophy, psychedelics, and libertarianism. And the more he developed these interests, the more he felt like he was destined for something different. And as a libertarian, of course, Ross thought that taxation was theft, the less government, the better, and individual freedom was one of the most important human rights. His ultimate goal was freedom, not just for himself, but for others too. But Ross ended up sticking with his master's program, and he graduated in 2009. And from there, he and his girlfriend ended up moving back to Austin. And Ross started day trading around this time. He also tried to start a video games company, but both of these ventures were a bust. Ross had given up a career in science to pursue business, and now he felt like he'd failed. But a good business opportunity eventually did come knocking. He and his downstairs neighbor became partners in a used book reseller called Good Wagon Books. By the end of 2010, Ross was thinking about starting another business venture, but he wanted to do something that would incorporate Bitcoin. Back then, your average person had no idea what cryptocurrency was. Ross discovered Bitcoin in his day trading days. He loved that the currency was untraceable and not tied to any central bank. Instead, the prices were determined by the market alone. So Bitcoin really matched well with Ross's libertarian political philosophy. And as you may guess, Ross also had a strong belief that drug use was a personal choice and it wasn't something that the government should interfere with. He was a strong opponent of the war on drugs and he believed that people should be able to buy and sell drugs as they pleased. So this belief, along with the libertarianism and Bitcoin, all combined to form Ross's new business idea. He was going to make something revolutionary. It would be an online marketplace where users could buy and sell drugs anonymously. Ross actually wrote on his LinkedIn, I am creating an economic simulation to give people a firsthand experience of what it would be like to live in a world without the systemic use of force. So he toyed around with the name for a little while. He didn't know exactly what to call this marketplace. At one point, he considered the name 
underground brokers, but it wasn't the perfect fit. But finally, Ross settled on a name for the marketplace, Silk Road. I think the name Silk Road is actually very fitting for this because if you don't know what the Silk Road is, there actually was a real Silk Road that existed long ago that was actually a trade route linking China with the West. And it basically just allowed you know goods and ideas to be carried between the great civilizations of Rome and China. That's how religious ideas got passed and and all sorts of different goods and and uh, trades. So I think Silk Road was actually a really good name for it because oh. it's kind of a you know creative little twist. Yeah, yeah, it's Super kind of paying fun. tribute to you know this ancient trade route that you know he's kind of modernized, but in a different way, mm-hmm. different goods. <laughs> yeah, kind of like an if you know you know thing. Mm-hmm. So you're probably wondering how Ross was planning to just launch this website. I mean, after all, you can't just launch the drug dealing version of Amazon on the regular Internet, you know, in full view of the authorities. He needed to learn computer programming so he could launch this site on the dark web. So we're going to dive into the dark web a little bit because it's a big part of this story, clearly. Yeah. So let's take a look at what the difference is between the surface web, the deep web and the dark web. So like I kind of mentioned at the beginning of the episode, the surface web is basically the internet that the general public commonly uses every day. It's what you access through Google Chrome, Internet Explorer, I guess it's called Edge now, or Firefox. And that's where you access Edge your now? email. Yeah, it's called Microsoft Edge. Um, oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, well, you haven't used a Microsoft device in a long time, so probably wouldn't know. Apple all day. Ugh. Anyways, obviously, surface web is where you do your email, YouTube, that's where you're watching this episode just your everyday browsing. But then there's another layer of the internet known as the deep web. And the deep web is basically any website that isn't indexed by a search engine like Google, uh, like DuckDuckGo, and many other search engines out there. So these websites, in order to access them, you need a direct URL to get to them or a password. So you you wouldn't know how to find those websites because most of us, in order to find where we're going on the internet, we're using some sort of search engine. So it's not actually ever going to come up in those search results. But the part of the internet that we're going to be focusing on today is known as the dark web or dark net. And to get to dark net sites, you need special software or configurations. On the dark web, users can exchange data and view websites anonymously without any of their info being tracked. For that reason, the dark net is great for people trying to get around government censorship or whistleblowers like Edward Snowden. Because like on the regular internet, ISP, internet service provider is seeing all of the data that you are, you know, passing over the internet, all the websites you're going to, all your traffic is monitored and kept in log somewhere at the data center for these different internet service providers. And so that's why VPNs and, you know, services like ExpressVPN are great because, you know, they, they allow you to help encrypt that information and also hide your location, hide your IP address because all everybody's internet connected device has an ip address and so your ip address is traceable so if you ever do something illegal on your computer device the authorities are going to go to the internet service provider they're going to figure out what your ip address is and then they're able to find your your geolocation that way and you would think no one would really use this like or at least most people wouldn't but then i was looking more into it there's actually like a ton of people who are on the dark web Oh, yeah, there's tons. <laughs> Which, yes. like, kind of, well, kind of blows my mind because I feel like, you know, you think, oh. Just like a select group. Yeah, exactly. Of, yeah. But it's actually quite common. And I think people even use it not knowing the fact that they're on it, um, which is kind of interesting. Like, I was reading this one article. It's from 2020, so it's kind of old. But it says, 
dark web activity has increased by 300% in the last three years. In 2019, a survey showed that nearly 25% of North Americans use the dark web to ensure their privacy from foreign governments, and another 38% use it to protect their privacy from internet companies. So, well, you got to think if you're somewhere where you have, oh, there's places in the world, there's countries where the government censors the internet, yeah. right? And so, if you're on the surface web, all of that is being censored, and, you know, like there's blocks and filters. And so, to get around that, you can go, you know, through these to the dark net and which again like there's different there's different content available there like to navigate it is is very very different from the surface web you definitely have to have some technical knowledge to get your way around because it's not like there's easy ways to to find exactly what you're looking for you got to kind of know you know the pathways to find those different things but the dark web is probably most famous for its illegal activity i think that's what most of us think when we hear dark net mm-hmm. we're like illegal shit's going on well, that's because there's all sorts of things going on there, like buying and selling drugs, stolen credit cards, fake IDs and passports, and counterfeit money. But these services are actually on the mild side of the dark web, sadly. Going further, you have people who use the dark web to buy and sell illegal weapons or stolen goods. And the dark web has also been used as a communication platform for extremists or black hat hackers. Because again, it's it's the the key is being able to remain anonymous there and not being traced, which is why these types of people like the dark net. But then there's even darker and more depraved areas of the dark web that's being used for murder for hire, snuff films, child pornography, and terrorism. So obviously governments across the world have a huge interest in trying to stop these darknet markets and services, so they spend a lot of resources monitoring and infiltrating communities on the dark web. But with the right technology and operational security, users can stay truly anonymous, meaning their information is hidden even from authorities, which that does help you to some extent, but because there's agents infiltrating these places, even where the darkest, most depraved shit's going on, there's obviously always a risk that you're going to be interacting with law enforcement on there and you will never know. So, you know, that's oftentimes how they figure out, you know, how to take down people and figure out people's identities is you have to go and basically be like a catfish or social engineering and work people that way. Like I mentioned earlier, the most famous dark web network is Tor, which stands for the Onion Router which Tor was originally launched by the Navy in 2002 as a way to communicate on the internet anonymously. Today, anyone can download the software and Tor users can access hidden services on the Onion network and basically websites with the domain .onion. So like we kind of explained before, a big part of the dark web is markets and the preferred currencies are different kinds of cryptocurrencies, most famously Bitcoin. The reason that crypto became the default currency on the Silk Road is that it couldn't be tracked like fiat money could. If you're buying legal drugs online, you're not going to be using your American Express card. You're going to have to go with your anonymous Bitcoin. So now that we've got over the basics of the dark web, we're going to jump back into the making of the Silk Road Anonymous Marketplace. So Ross had to put in loads and loads of work. He had to learn how to computer program. I mean, cropping up a website, especially on the dark net in a marketplace, is from scratch is like no easy task. That definitely takes a lot of work. So Ross launched Silk Road in late January of 2011. Not only did he spend the past few months programming the site, he had been growing 10 pounds of magic mushrooms. Hell yeah. And after all, the site needed its first product. So Ross was going to provide that. He was Silk Road's first vendor. But if nobody knows about your website that you just built, who's going to come buy your shrooms? Well, Ross had to get the word out somehow. So he put up a post on Shroomery, 
an online forum for magic mushrooms. Under the screen name Altoid, Ross wrote a post posing as a potential buyer. He Honestly, said, pretty smart. Smart, but as we'll find out later, not so well, smart. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's true. But a good way to get business. Yeah, I mean, that's a smart way to get people to come to your side is just be like, oh, yeah, I just stumbled across this, mm -hmm. well, this shop online. If he knew the future of the Silk Road and yeah, he probably would have done unfold. this a little differently. Yeah. But he said, I came across this website called Silk Road. It's a tour hidden service that claims to allow you to buy and sell anything online anonymously. I'm thinking of buying off of it, but want to see if anyone here had heard of it and could recommend it. Let me know what you think. After he posted this, the buyer started coming. Ross made his first sale and then another and then another. And soon all 10 pounds of the shrooms were gone. But then more vendors started to trickle in and started selling their own goods to anonymous buyers. Ross ended up handling each transaction by hand while the market grew. Hundreds of listings started popping up and the list of different drugs users could purchase grew and the word started to spread. By June, the blog Gawker had published an article about the site. Only a few days later, U.S. Senator Chuck Schumer called a news conference and asked the feds, shut down that website. <laughs> wow, <laughs> that was lit. Oh. Pretty accurate. Yeah. All of this media attention basically served as an advertisement for the site. Thanks, Chuck. <laughs> Overnight, it exploded in growth. Now there were thousands of listings and tens of thousands of users on the site daily. Ross was completely overwhelmed and obviously spooked by the attention, but he was now the creator of something huge, something bigger than himself. He had a little thing that said, Restricted items. Do not list anything whose purpose is to harm or defraud, such as stolen items or info, stolen credit cards, counterfeit currency, personal info, assassinations, and weapons of any kind. Do not list anything related to pedophilia. So that was the restrictions on the marketplace at the time. So Ross felt like it was his responsibility to make sure that the site reflected his vision and ethics. Silk Road wouldn't sell anything that's sole purpose was to harm others. So no hitmen, no stolen goods, no child porn. But no in terms of drugs, yeah, no weapons. But in terms of drugs, you could get anything you wanted. I mean, we're talking anything. The amount of different listings for different products was really something to behold. You could have anything from fish scale cocaine to rainbow sheets of LSD all the way to black tar heroin. There was also multiple categories that vendors listed their drugs under like cannabis, disassociatives, ecstasy, opioids, prescriptions, psychedelics, stimulants, precursors, and others. You could even get pharmaceuticals like Adderall, Xanax, Oxycontin. You could even get pure MDMA, a rainbow of candy shaped ecstasy pills in an alphabet soup of different designer drugs and research chemicals even. There's also a variety of other goods for sale on the site, like art, drug paraphernalia, drug manufacturing guides, fake designer goods, offshore banking manuals, and pirated software. It was an inventory beyond what any street dealer could ever offer. You just had to be smart enough to get on the site and not get caught. But beyond the technical stuff, buying drugs on Silk Road was pretty easy. So now let's take you through a sample transaction. Let's say you wanted to buy 10 ecstasy pills. After you had all your tech stuff ready to go and you'd bought your Bitcoin, You'd log on to Silk Road and start browsing. Once you found the perfect listing, you just add the drugs to your cart and hit purchase and send the bitcoins to the vendor. You'd also send the vendor your shipping address, which believe it or not, using your real name and address was safer than a fake one. Then you just wait, pray a little bit, hope that what you ordered actually shows up. But oftentimes the drugs would be hidden in some sort of stealth item like a DVD case or lotion bottle in order to hide it from customs because a lot of this was coming from overseas. Like magic, those 10 ecstasy pills would show up to your door as if you'd ordered something off of eBay. But obviously, this had risks. 
the most obvious one being, of course, getting caught by the authorities. If the feds intercepted the package, two things could happen. If you were lucky, you'd just get a seizure notice nicknamed a love letter. Basically, the letter would say your package was being held on suspicion of containing drugs, and the package would be destroyed in 30 days unless you claimed it. From there on out, the police would be monitoring your mail, so you'd be stupid to try and order to that address again. Then there is the risk of a controlled delivery. This is basically sort of a setup or a sting operation. Your package would be delivered to your door and the postman would usually ask for a signature. But as soon as you signed or took the package inside, undercover cops would leap out of the bushes and arrest you. This was what I was afraid of. That's why I never ventured on there too far. But buyers also (laughs) ran the risk of being scammed by vendors who didn't ship product or sold fake drugs. There was also the rare possibility that vendors would try and extort you basically threatening you with your name and address to try to get you to pay up. But many users believe that these risks were much more preferable to the risks of street dealing. Silk Road to save them from sketchy or dangerous situations with street dealers and the cops. Online users could avoid the violence as typical in the offline drug world. The website also helped people get pure drugs rather than buying street drugs that have likely been adulterated or laced. A part of that I think is honestly smart especially now mm-hmm. i mean we all know that the fentanyl crisis is oh, ripping through this country right now it's terrifying and you know if you buy it online and you're able to buy it from these people who have good reviews and seem reputable mm-hmm. then your likelihood of getting something pure goes up because if people are selling a bunch of shit then no one's going to buy from that seller so they had to like you know keep their reputation yeah. high well, what if you're one of the first few buyers? Right. Yeah. Well, that's a risk then yeah. that you have to be willing to take. Hopefully mm-hmm. there's a discount for that. But I guess first yeah, time it's buyer. safer than just buying it off the streets. You In don't some know. ways. Yeah. It's not like that person has reviews. Which someone's argument's like, oh, well, you know, you bought a drug on there and what if you died? How can you leave a review? <laughs> you know, like if yeah. you were to buy some bad drugs. But, but then again, like most people who would go on the marketplace were looking for this... You, you know, you could filter the vendors by ratings and, and feedback. Yeah. And so most people are probably buying from a handful of yeah. vendors that are that are reputable and getting good reviews. And if it is laced, like, yes, there's a chance that you die. But a lot of times people take laced drugs and just have a horrible experience. Right. They're getting right. really sick and don't right. die. So then they'd probably go on there and be like, this fucked me up and not in a good way. Yeah. Don't buy from this dude, you know. Yeah. Plus the feedback system really helped with, you know, people's faith in the system that they're not going to get scammed right like uh, that would be a big concern if you're going to go on there and drop some serious coin on you know a bunch of drugs like how do you know you're actually going to get those and you're they're not just going to steal your money Mm -hmm. you know like that's definitely a risk you're going to take because scams really hurt the silk road brand and community so ross and the staff worked hard to prevent them and as we'll see later though the lengths they'd go to stop scams became pretty ruthless At just 26 years old, Ross was an online drug kingpin, the likes of which had never seen before. And he was also wanted by law enforcement agencies in dozens of countries. While there had been online drug markets before Silk Road came along, there were none with the sophistication and popularity that Silk Road had. So for that reason, Silk Road is considered the first modern online drug market. But naturally, with the success of Silk Road, other people wanted to get in on the action. So rival dark net markets started to pop up. And the most notable competitor was Atlantis, which billed itself as the Facebook to Silk Road's MySpace. But this market was not as successful as Silk Road, and it actually shut down after three months. But Silk Road was not just a drug market to people. 
it became its own community of like-minded people. And the spirit behind it is what kept its popularity above its competitors. The staff was thought of to be honest people with a vision or a mission, liberty and drugs for all. And then in February of 2012, Ross decided he needed a name on the Silk Road. And he came up with Dread Pirate Roberts, or DPR for short. And the name was taken from the Princess Bride, as many of you probably recognize. And it was a pretty genius name because it implied that more than one person was running the account and the identity could be passed on to other people, just like in the movie. So Dread Pirate Roberts would host some fun little Silk Road book clubs where he'd post writings of the libertarian economist Ludwig von Mises and invite users to discuss. The site would also host movie watch parties and live discussions. So it really did become a community. And by this time, business was booming. Ross was making millions of dollars in commissions from the site. Sales showed no sign of stopping, even with increased media attention and some hiccups along the way. Some dealers and users had been busted, and the site became a target for hackers. Ross was having to pay $50,000 a month to these hackers in protection racket schemes. But the site kept chugging along. And with all this business coming in, Ross knew that he couldn't manage the website on his own. So he began recruiting trusted users from the site to become staff members. I mean, keeping this huge secret probably made Ross feel kind of lonely. But these staff members became his own little inner circle. The people in Ross's life noticed that he was constantly busy. He was very vague about what he was doing and how he made money. He basically told them that he was involved in day trading. Ross explained to a Silk Road staff member, I have my little alibi. I'm clever, so I can BS when I need to. But it was sort of frustrating living in this double life. His friends kept asking why he never had any free time. And Ross wrote that he wished he could scream because I'm running a goddamn multi-million dollar criminal enterprise. <laughs> but all the secrecy put a stress on his relationship with his girlfriend, Julia, and Ross was always on his computer. Whenever she would walk into the room, he would slam it shut. And obviously, that's not a great look. So finally, Ross's constant work became too much and they broke up. So then one day, Ross's childhood friend called and asked him to move to San Francisco. And Ross jumped at the chance. Two weeks after that phone call, Ross was there, ready to control his startup from the American tech mecca. And around this time, his vision started to shift. Before, Ross had explicitly banned firearm sales on the website, but that changed when the site added a weapons category for listings. On February 26, 2012, DPR announced that a separate site called the Armory was being created for the sale of small arms weaponry for the purpose of self-defense. But in August of 2012, DPR closed the armory because it wasn't getting a lot of use. But of course, the drug business continued to thrive. The word about Silk Road had spread tremendously, and that meant that it ended up on the radar of the feds. And basically what happened was the U.S. Postal Inspector Service was seeing an uptick in drugs being sent through the mail. They were catching a lot more of these packages than usual. So at an interagency meeting, they informed the FBI, DEA, IRS, and Homeland Security that there were drugs coming in through a website called the Silk Road. And of course, the U.S. government was not going to just let this one slide. So they started their investigation into the marketplace. And the goal was to get the site shut down, get the owner arrested, and all the funds seized. But all these different agencies were not having any luck taking down Silk Road. 
That is until an FBI agent named Chris Tarbell got on the case. He was determined to be the agent that brought down the Silk Road, but other agents were just as determined. Carl Mark Force was a DEA agent who started going undercover to try and unmask DPR. He posed as Knob, a cartel operative based in the Dominican Republic, and he messaged DPR and told him that he was interested in buying the website. DPR declined the offer, of course, but he told Knob that the Silk Road was bigger than he was imagining. But the two continued to exchange messages back and forth since Knob was trying to get DPR to agree to other business ventures. And through their messages, the two of them ended up developing some sort of friendship, but neither knew exactly who was on the other side of the screen. As time went on, Ross started to get cockier. Of course, he was under a lot of threats, hackers, law enforcement, site vulnerabilities, and more. And he was obviously stressed, but he was making more money than he could have ever imagined. And the power he was gaining from running the site may have gone to his head a little. So that created some blind spots in terms of security. By mid-2012, Ross must have had some idea that he needed an exit plan, and the pressure was on. He had a lot of money now, and he needed somewhere safe to put it. So he started researching tax havens like Monte Carlo and Andorra, and he even filed an application for citizenship of the Caribbean country Dominica, where they traded passports for substantial economic investment. Ross was making a lot of money off the site, but for the most part, you couldn't really tell because Ross had always been a very frugal guy to the point where it caused fights between him and his ex-girlfriend. He wasn't really interested in flashy things. DPR actually explained on the forum that not much about his spending habits had changed. He could get nicer groceries and some better clothes, and he could treat his friends and family to dinner more often, but he wasn't interested in buying fast cars or big toys like that. Besides, flaunting money could catch the attention of the feds, of course. We all remember how the Wolf of Wall Street went down. You get too flashy with your money. You start Mm -hmm. spending on yachts and all these things. It does -hmm. does attract the attention. You start spending. I mean, if you go to the bank and get $10,000 in cash and they start looking at you funny, they're like, what you need $10,000 in cash for? What you doing with that, Josh? Yeah. (laughs) It's top secret. It's classified. <laughs> oh no, I think it was, I think it was for like a a vehicle or something. Like, yeah. I think I paid the difference or something in cash for whatever reason. Just because sometimes the the pain with checks and everything else, and they got to run credit and this and that. I just was like, how about I just go get some cash? But nowadays they get really sketchy. If you go into a bank and ask to pull like twenty grand, yeah, they won't let you. Like they don't even have that most of the time in banks yeah. now. Yeah, like. 10,000 you can do fairly easy. But yeah, they they make you like sign a form and even even at the car dealership I had to sign a form that was like going to get sent uh just like recording the cash transaction yeah. and everything. So they watch that very carefully, which with Bitcoin it's a little bit different. Mm-hmm. So he was probably, you know, he's getting all this Bitcoin and then he's, you know, trading it back for for real money, which is crazy at the time. I think it was, Bitcoin was trading for like between 60 and like two hundred dollars a Bitcoin. Damn, we should that's have wild. Like, that's crazy. So if you think he was trading thousands of Bitcoin, so like, I, th- I think they were talking about, or I read something of like how much money he would actually have today had it not been seized and he was still going, and he would be like a multi multi billionaire. That's right wild. now. Easy. Well, before the crash, I should say, before yeah. the crypto crash, because <laughs> uh, Bitcoin is still doing all right. Yeah. It's hopefully it'll make it come back, but. When it was at its peak, I mean, he would have been worth, he would have been a multi-billionaire for sure. 
But according to Ross, money was not the motivation here. He actually explained on Silk Road, all that being said, my primary motivation is not personal wealth, but making a difference. As corny as it sounds, I just want to look back at my life and know that I did something worthwhile that helped people. It's paradoxical, but the less you focus on your own happiness and focus on others, the happier you'll be. Try it out. You can always go back to being selfish. Smiley face. Here's my thing, though. What's your thing? What he should have done, and I may be completely wrong about this, but since he had so much money, he should have went and spent that shit. Totally. So that it could not be seized. because, And he should have just spread it around as much as he could. He should have bought all of his family shit, houses. He should have, he should have went and But then they're going to raise an eyebrow. How are you able to do this? Well, not necessarily. do that without not, people noticing? Well, it's digital, so it's not quite as true. He's not dealing with cash, right? He's not dealing in cash. But, but if he, ha- he buys his family a house, they're going to be like, how are you doing? Oh, that? his family, you mean? Right. Yeah. Well, yeah, I guess his family. But like he should have. My point is, is that he should have spent way more money than yeah. just sitting there because saying. then there would have been less for the the feds to seize when they did take him down because because he was so frugal and he didn't really seem to care about money all that much. There was all this money for them to go and and seize. I think it was like twenty percent was uh wasn't able to be uh you know found or whatever, but. That's 20% of, so they were able to get a whole bunch of his money and Mm. assets. So somewhere along the way, the original version of Silk Road, which was free markets and no harm to others, became terribly distorted. And it started with the case of Curtis Green. So Curtis Green was a 47-year-old man that really seemed just like your average Joe. He and his wife, Tanya, lived with their two chihuahuas in the quiet town of Spanish Fork, just south of Provo, Utah. On the surface, Curtis lived a normal, quiet life but nobody knew that Curtis Green was actually the user Chronic Pain, who was selling oxycodone and other pills on Silk Road. Since he dealt with chronic pain, he had a lot of knowledge on pharmaceuticals, especially opiates. He also had an interest in computers and safe drug use. Dread Pirate Roberts eventually gave him approval to create and moderate a new forum on the Silk Road, the Health and Wellness Forum. Curtis spent hours counseling members on safe use practices, and DPR was impressed with Curtis's work. So much so that he offered him a paid position as Silk Road's customer service in November of 2012. Curtis quickly proved to be a good employee, but all that changed only a month or so later in January of 2013. One day, Curtis was having a normal day at home when his doorbell rang. He opened the door and found a book-sized priority package sitting on the stoop. It was postmarked from Maryland with no return address. Curtis decided to take the package inside. He plopped it on the kitchen table and tore it open with a pair of scissors. And for the contents of the package, it was a kilogram of pure Peruvian fish scale cocaine worth $27,000. Which, by the way, if you're wondering what fish scale cocaine is, it's super high potent cocaine that has like this kind of it's like shiny, iridescent kind of look to it. So, you oh. know, kind of like fish scales, you know, how they have like that shiny look to them. Hmm. So I didn't know there were like different types of cocaine. I did not either. So just as he's admiring this kilogram of cocaine a SWAT team busts down the door of the battering ram rushes inside and they immediately order Curtis to the floor and throw cuffs on him the SWAT team then raided the house where they found $23,000 in Curtis's fanny pack which he claimed was his tax return all the while his two chihuahuas were barking like crazy trying to bite at the cop's shoes 
Curtis had actually bought the cocaine off of a Silk Road vendor named Knob. And little did he know, Knob was actually DEA agent Carl Force. And now Carl was in his house standing over him like a hunter who had finally caught his prey. Curtis begged the agents not to take him to jail, saying he knows everything about me. But Carl wasn't having it. The agents hauled him into a squad car and told him that he was being charged with the possession of cocaine with intent to distribute. Carl gave him his card and told Curtis to give him a call when he got out. When they took him back to be interrogated, Curtis was obviously terrified. He warned them that if they made his charges and name public, it would be a death sentence. He told them that Dread Pirate Roberts was a dangerous man worth millions who could definitely have him killed. Curtis ended up being released on bail, and obviously by the time he got home, he knew what he needed to do. He picked up the phone and called Carl. Maybe cooperating with him would save his life. And over the next few days, DPR was starting to get anxious. Chronic pain had been offline for days, and when he looked up Curtis's name, he found out that he had been arrested. So now there was a problem. DPR assumed that Curtis would tell the authorities everything. Not only that, but another Silk Road employee alerted him that $350,000 in Bitcoin had been taken out of some of the accounts, and these thefts could all be traced back to Curtis's admin account. So now DPR had to figure out a solution, and quickly. Curtis's arrest could put the whole community in jeopardy, Plus, the stolen Bitcoins were a big issue, so he messaged Carl, aka Knob, for help. Carl had carefully crafted the Knob persona with an elaborate backstory. Like we mentioned, this Knob character was supposed to be a cartel guy in the DR. Knob had told DPR earlier that he had done work in enforcement and collections during his criminal career, so it made sense that DPR would call on him for help now. He explained that he needed someone to rough up a guy in Utah that was giving him problems. Knob asked what kind of services DPR was looking for and whether or not he wanted the guy beat up or killed. DPR sent over a scan of Curtis's ID. He wrote, I'd like him beat up, then forced to send the bitcoins he stole back. Not sure how these things usually go. Meanwhile, Carl and Curtis were sitting in a room at the Marriott Salt Lake City. Curtis was now a DEA informant. He had spent the last few days with a task force teaching them how to operate parts of the Silk Road website. He'd also taught them how to move and hide bitcoin. Members of that task force included Carl, a secret service agent named Sean Bridges, and other Baltimore-based DEA agents. Carl was messaging back and forth with DPR working out the deal. Curtis told Carl that he didn't steal any Bitcoins. In fact, he pointed out that his computer was with the task force when the Bitcoins went missing. But Carl didn't want to talk Bitcoins anymore. There was a new message from DPR. Okay, so can you change the order to execute rather than torture? And this is where things really changed. Ross had set out to build a grand libertarian experiment to show the world what freedom looked like, but something had shifted in Ross. Now he was willing to have people killed for the cause. It was clear he struggled internally with the decision, but his mind was made up. He messaged Knob, never killed a man or had one killed before, but it is the right move in this case. And then the negotiations began. When it was all said and done, Knob agreed to have Curtis killed for $80,000. DPR sent $40,000 to Knob as sort of a down payment. But for the plan to work, they had to sell the hit. The task force had to make it look like Curtis had been tortured and killed. So the task force set up a camera in the hotel bathroom and got to work. And over the next few days, they brought Curtis's execution to life. The agents posed as hitmen and dunked his head in a bathtub while he thrashed and struggled to breathe. It actually took five tries for the agents to get the perfect video of the water torture. Then it was time for the final photo. They're going to make it look like Curtis died during the torture. They actually used a can of Campbell's chicken noodle soup to accomplish this. 
In the pictures, Curtis had the soup in his mouth and dripping down his face to mimic the vomit produced by asphyxiation. When DPR received the pictures and had believed that the hit had taken place, he sent the other $40,000 half. He wrote that he regretted having to have someone taken out, but it's what had to be done. The implications of his actions still weighed on him. DPR wrote to one of his top staff that he worried power and success would corrupt him, but he believed in his vision. With the Curtis situation taken care of, it was time to keep trudging forward. But a very similar problem popped up pretty quickly. And that's when on March 13th, 2013, a user named Friendly Chemist sent a message to the Silk Road staff with the subject, very important. He said he had an urgent issue that involved the identities of many Silk Road vendors and buyers. He needed to talk to DPR immediately and he wouldn't speak to anyone else about the issue. Friendly chemists claimed that there were a supplier for a Silk Road vendor named Lucy Drop. He claimed that he had lent Lucy Drop $500,000 worth of product, and now Lucy Drop had gone MIA. Friendly chemists explained that he gotten the product from suppliers who expected to be paid back, and these suppliers were dangerous people who were now demanding their money. The lives of him and his family were in danger, and he needed $500,000 to pay these suppliers or go on the run, if he didn't get the money, he'd release the identities of nine top vendors, 15 smaller vendors, and thousands of users. Dread Pirate Roberts was not fond of scammers and blackmailers. As far as he was concerned, this guy's situation was not his problem. But Friendly Chemist sent a sample of these real identities to show he meant business. He needed the money soon or everything would be leaked. Obviously, this posed a huge issue for Dread Pirate Roberts. This kind of leak would ruin Silk Road and put the whole community in danger. He couldn't tolerate blackmail. After a bit of back and forth, DPR told Friendly Chemist to have his supplier contact him directly. And on March 25th, 2013, DPR got a message from a user named Red and White. Red and White claimed to be Friendly Chemist's supplier, who he owed money to. He was also a high-ranking member of the motorcycle gang Hell's Angels. But DPR saw another opportunity in Red and White. Being a true businessman, he was going to spin this problem into a deal that would expand Silk Road. DPR wrote, Obviously you have access to illicit substances in quantity and are having issues with bad distributors. If you don't already sell here on Silk Road, I'd like you to consider becoming a vendor. So this is where the business talks began. Red and White explained that Hell's Angels controlled most of the drug market in Western Canada, and they were looking for ways to expand. But their partners weren't too keen on getting on Silk Road now that Friendly Chemist wasn't paying up. DPR had a solution to that. He wrote, In my eyes, Friendly Chemist is a liability, and I wouldn't mind if he was executed, but then you'd be out your 700k. He also sent over some of Friendly Chemist's info. His name was Blake Krokoff, a 34-year-old man who lived in White Rock, British Columbia, with a wife and three kids. As Red and White and DPR messaged back and forth, they talked about the logistics of dealing on Silk Road. DPR was really trying to sell Red and White on the idea. Red and White also mentioned that they'd kidnapped Friendly Chemist's partner and recovered their product. He wrote that they tortured this partner for information and then killed him. So now they didn't have an issue with Friendly Chemist. But Friendly Chemist was still bothering DPR. He told him that if he wasn't paid 500000 in 72 hours, he would release all the info. So DPR hit up Red and White again and said, I would like to put a bounty on his head if it's not too much trouble for you. Now, the negotiations started. DPR seemed to struggle with his first hit that he took out on Curtis. But as we'll see, taking hits out on people started to get easier and easier for him. He wrote, This kind of behavior is unforgivable to me, especially here in Silk Road. Anonymity is sacrosanct. So, Red and White responded with his pricing. 
300,000 for a clean hit, 200 to 150,000 for a non-clean hit. DPR responded, don't want to be a pain here, but the price seems high. Not long ago, I had a clean hit done for 80,000. Are the prices you quoted the best you can do? So Red and White agreed on 150K. DPR admitted, I've only ever commissioned the one other hit, so I'm still learning this market. I have no problem putting my faith in you, and I am sure you will do a good job. And with that, DPR sent over the Bitcoins. Red and White responded the next day and said, your problem has been taken care of. Rest easy, though, because he won't be blackmailing anyone again, ever. He sent over a photo of the hit, and DPR responded, excellent work. But there was another issue. Red and White explained that the hitters who tortured and killed friendly chemist got some information out of him. There was another user on Silk Road who had been running scams, a man named Andrew Lawsry from Surrey, British Columbia. Andrew had been scamming users under the username Tony76, Lucy Drop, and Nipple Suck And every time he'd run a scam, he'd wait a little while before setting up a new scam account and making off with thousands of Bitcoin. DPR decided that Andrew needed to be taken care of as well. If he wasn't killed, he'd keep running scams. Of course, Red and White was happy to help, but for another 150000 But Red and White explained that Andrew lived with three other people, and the four of them all sold product together. And now that the heat was on, they were planning on moving out of the province. The hitters said that they could take out the four men for 150000 each. After some careful convincing from Red and White, DPR agreed to have all four killed for 500000 and sent over the Bitcoin. On April 15th, 2013, Red and White told DPR that the hits were done. He sent over another photo as proof, and to make up for the Bitcoin price fluctuations, DPR sent over another 250000 So now, as far as Ross, or Dread Pirate Roberts, knew, he had successfully killed six people through Hitman. He'd even seen pictures to prove it. And this was a far cry from the freedom and peace ethos that DPR claimed to have. It showed just how much this dark underworld had shifted his morals over time. But there's another huge twist here. None of these murders actually happened. That's right. He had been scammed. Of course, the Curtis Green hit was faked by the DEA, but it turns out the whole friendly chemist situation was all an elaborate scam. All of these people, Lucy Drop, Friendly Chemist, Red and White, and Andrew and his three roommates, none of them actually existed. They were all fictional identities run by one scammer. And this scammer was able to take 7,225 bitcoins from DPR. And at this time, these were worth around a million dollars. At today's rate, this would be $153.5 million. Oh, man. Crazy. I know. Absolutely wild. But DPR wouldn't find out the truth about his hits until much later. In the meantime, he kept working on expanding the business, running the site. And by this point, the site had reached over a million users and the FBI was hot on his trail. In fact, in June of 2013, Chris Tarbell and his team made a crucial discovery, the IP address of the Silk Road server. This would help them crack the case wide open. They were able to track the IP address to the Thor data center located in Iceland, where Ross had rented servers. Chris and two U.S. attorneys visited the data center that July. The Icelandic police found a box corresponding to the Silk Road, 
but they discovered that the server had a mirror or a duplicate copy of its contents. They were able to get into the back end of the Silk Road now, and they could see everything, including DPR's communications. And obviously this was huge. So now they had to figure out who exactly DPR was. And this is where a set of crucial mistakes that Ross made began to come together to solve the puzzle. Earlier in June, Ross decided that he was going to try to rent more server space for Silk Road. And to do that, he was going to need to rent the space using some fake IDs. So Ross bought nine fake IDs off Silk Road, all with different names and fake addresses. But each ID had his photo on it. The IDs would be sent to his home in San Francisco, where Ross was subletting a room under the name Joshua Terry. And when the fake IDs shipped, Canadian Customs selected the package for a routine search. And that's when they found the IDs and notified U.S. Homeland Security. Homeland Security decided to do a controlled delivery on the package. So agents showed up to Ross's doorstep and confronted him with the package. But Ross kept his cool. He knew that he didn't have to talk to the agents and they couldn't prove that he'd actually ordered the IDs himself. Ross admitted to nothing. As the agents were leaving, though, he said something weird. He told them that, hypothetically, anyone could visit the website Silk Road, where they could buy drugs and fake IDs. So Ross got off lucky this time, but he saw the close call as a sign to move. This time, he rented a room in San Francisco's Glen Park neighborhood, but he wouldn't stay nameless for long. Now that the FBI had the server, they could see traffic logs for ports where the Silk Road admins could log in. The IP that had last connected to the port was traced to Cafe Luna, a coffee shop in San Francisco. But there were other IPs that the team tracked back to different parts of the world. The thing is, all the machines on the servers had one trusted computer that they could all talk to. And the computer had the ID Frosty. Chris knew that this computer was DPR. He just didn't know what node corresponded to Frosty yet. An IRS agent working on the case named Gary Alford actually stumbled across a key piece of information while he was doing some simple Google searching. He wanted to track down the first mentions of Silk Road on the surface web. So he went on advanced search mode and filtered results for the month of January 2011, right around the launch of Silk Road. And that's where he found a post on the web forum Shroomery under the username Altoid. Like we mentioned before, this was Ross posing as a potential customer. He was trying to get the word out about the site without looking like he was doing it for some self-promotion. This post was the first surface web hit for the site's name. And through some digging, the agent found some other posts on a forum called Bitcoin Talk with the username Altoid. These posts were created around the same time that the Shroomery post was made. And in one of these posts, the user wrote that they were looking to hire an IT professional for a startup. There was an email attached to the post for potential candidates to apply, and it was rossalbricht at gmail.com. <laughs> Bad move. So sure enough, under the Altoid username, more posts contained the same email address. That is such a big mistake yeah, to make, especially know, at wild. the very beginning, like... It's just, I think it also lends to what his mindset was at the beginning. I don't think he had any idea no. that mm -mm. it was going to turn into this multi-billion dollar criminal enterprise, clearly. I yeah. mean, if he had known, you know, what, what it would end up being, I yeah. highly doubt, I bet he would have gone about the launch of it very differently mm -hmm. in, much, in a much more secretive way. Because it's like, why would you 
A, use the same username, which I, I get most of us do that. We use the same username for all of our yeah. accounts. But when you're potentially sitting in a legal marketplace, why would you use the same username across multiple forums, but then link your email and let alone an email that has your full name in it? I know. Big, super, big mistake. Super, dumb. And there's more. Gary found another hit for the Altoid profile from the programming Q&A website Stack Overflow. A post from March 16th, 2013 showed the Altoid user asking a Tor-related question, and the email listed was rossalbrecht at gmail.com. A minute later, the user changed their display name from Altoid to Frosty. Mm. So that's when it kind of all came together. When the FBI looked into this Ross Albrecht guy, they found social media profiles like his LinkedIn. And the information in those profiles matched a lot of what they knew about DPR. They saw Ross's love for libertarianism and Ludwig von Mises and a work history that aligned with what DPR was doing. Plus, the investigators found Homeland Security's file on Ross's fake ID order. His last known address was a half a block from Cafe Luna, one of the admin nodes that Chris's team pulled from the server. They realized that this was their guy. All they had to do was arrest him, but that wouldn't be so easy. I just can't believe that as things got bigger and bigger that he didn't take the time to protect himself better. Like, why wouldn't you go and try to erase all traces of yourself off the internet, like your real name and stuff? Like, you're, you're a drug kingpin now. Yeah. Why would you want your LinkedIn, which is still out there? Like, I just looked it up. It's public too. Yeah. yeah. Um, why would you want any sort of private personal information that would reveal your identity out there, know. let alone using? Well, I'm sure he didn't want that, but I think he just got. Well, clearly know, he just got too busy and yeah. completely forgot about and it. And distracted but. by all these little dramas going on and the idea of ordering kills on people and just how big it was all getting. I think he was not even thinking about that yeah well clearly he wasn't thinking and he, i'm sure he was sleep deprived as well i mean he was working on this thing they said like 24 7 so but i just don't get easy uh, to just make such dumb a mistake such a crucial mistake because yeah. ultimately that ultimately his downfall is a direct result of gary the irs agent yeah figuring out ross ulbricht at gmail.com i know like if he had it at least put ross ulbricht at gmail.com it would have been a little bit harder to try to figure out who altoid is and then Obviously, mm-hmm. they eventually, you know, when he changed it to Frosty, that that yeah. connected with you know, what they were seeing on the server. But it's just like he he got so caught up in in everything else that he forgot to like look out for himself. That to me is is crazy. I'm like trying to think if I were in this situation, how I would have handled it differently. But then again, I've never been in this situation, yeah. so maybe <laughs> so maybe the stress and just the pressure the pressure is. I oh, mean, yeah. just you it overwhelms you, and you can't think straight and you can't keep track i mean you're just trying to keep track of this massive website with a million users that the let the last thing you're thinking about is like oh what have i posted out there before yeah, right so he, he yeah he probably just forgot all about all of it but what a crucial mistake i mean if you're going to go into this type of endeavor i feel like first step is make sure nothing can be traced back to really who you your real identity i guess it's a good thing criminals uh slip up right that's how we catch them usually Since the FBI had a mere copy of the server, they were able to see what time DPR went offline and online. Through surveillance, they were able to match up his online behavior with his offline behavior as evidence, and now this would help them 
finally put him under arrest. On October 1, 2013, Agent Tarbell and other FBI agents, as well as an armed SWAT team, had been camped out in Ross's neighborhood. It was the day they'd been waiting for for years, the day that Dread Pirate Roberts and Silk Road would finally go down. But the police had to get Ross with his computer open because they knew the second he closed that laptop, all of the data would immediately become encrypted. All Ross had to do was hit control alt delete lock his computer, and they'd be screwed. So Tarbell and his agents created a plan. It'd be risky, and it definitely wasn't a part of normal FBI protocol, but it might just work. It was time for a little acting work. A Homeland Security agent had actually busted a low-level Silk Road admin named Cirrus earlier that year. She became an informant, and the agent took over the account pretending to be her. So by this point, Cirrus had risen up the ranks, and DPR trusted her. This account would be crucial in busting DPR. At 2.45 p.m., the Homeland Security agent noticed that DPR had logged off, so he was about to be on the move. Finally, a few minutes later, the door to Ross's apartment flew open, and Ross casually walked out with a book bag over his shoulder and headed for a cafe. But the cafe was too busy, and Ross had nowhere to sit, so he left. Then he made his way to the Glen Park branch of the San Francisco Public Library. Rawson sat at a table and started working on his laptop. Meanwhile, an undercover female agent sat at the same table pretending to be working. The agents had to catch Ross while he was on the admin page for the site, so they used Cirrus to lure him onto the mastermind page. Cirrus messaged Ross pretending that there was some sort of feedback issue that needed to be looked at. So Ross, who had no idea Cirrus was really a spy, opened up the page, and that's when agents moved in. Two agents posed as a homeless couple had walked behind Ross. Suddenly, they began to have a loud argument and shouted at each other. The female agent actually punched the male agent in the face, and the commotion was enough to get Ross to turn around, which was a fateful mistake. Just as he turned his back, the agent sitting at the desk grabbed his laptop, and Ross immediately went back around and lunged for it, but it was too late. In a split second, the agent snapped the laptop to her side, and another agent grabbed it. Then agents slapped handcuffs on him, and Ross was shocked, but he said nothing. The police hauled him out of the library and into a squad car. Meanwhile, agents continually pressed a spacebar on Ross's laptop to keep it alive. If went to sleep, there was a chance it would encrypt itself and the agency would be screwed. They also took photos of the laptop that showed what pages Ross had open. And sure enough, they had caught him red-handed, logged into the mastermind page. The machine ID showed the name Frosty. Silk Road was seized by the U.S. government and shut down the next day. Investigators redirected the site's visitors to a warning that the Silk Road had been seized. Users immediately flocked to Reddit to try and figure out what was going on. Some people thought it was a joke at first, but panic ensued. Everyone was worried that the police would come after them. The authorities ended up seizing 144,000 bitcoins from Ross in October of 2013, and at the time, this was worth $28.5 million. This would have made Ross a multimillionaire at the age of 29 and all of these Bitcoins were later auctioned off by the government. It blows my mind he was so young doing all of this. Yeah, 20. Like, I keep thinking, I don't know why I kept picturing him, at least in his 30s, but our age, creating all of this, this huge marketplace for drugs and doing all these things, then it's just, it's crazy. I mean, most of the biggest tech giants in the world are created by young yeah. minds. You know, yeah. you look at Mark Zuckerberg when he created Facebook. And- True, creators of ebay and good point you know elon musk i mean a lot of them are fairly young yeah it's it's interesting it's a lot to manage though i mean the amount of responsibility he had and Mm -hmm. just sheer oversight he had to give to this website is insane but it was far from over 
The authorities believe that Silk Road had 600,000 Bitcoins squirreled away in total worth around $80 million at the time. This was over 5% of the total Bitcoins in circulation. And again, this is in 2013. At Bitcoin's peak in November 2021, the 600,000 coins would have been worth $39 billion. Can you believe that? All these Bitcoins were thought to be the total profits from the Silk Road. But the coins wouldn't all be in one Bitcoin wallet. They'd be in a number of different wallets, all encrypted with their own private keys, which are incredibly difficult to crack. Ross wasn't the only one arrested either. Many members of his staff were arrested as well as vendors who sold products on the site. About a month after Silk Road was seized, a new version of the site popped up called Silk Road 2.0. The site was run by former Silk Road admins. A year later, the site was seized and shut down, and the owner was arrested and sentenced to five years in prison. Which This is an interesting uh, note to keep in mind as we get into Ross's trial. The owner of the new Silk Road 2.0, which wasn't around for very long at all, was sentenced only five years in prison. Since then, more Silk Road copycat sites have emerged, but none of them have really ended successfully. Ross pleaded not guilty to the charges against him, and his trial lasted about two weeks. The prosecution dropped the attempted murder charges, but kept them in court proceedings as an overact or an uncharged crime. They read out the messages Ross wrote in court, arguing that he was ruthless and believed he was really killing people. But even if the murder for hire plots didn't end in death, they put Ross on the hook for other casualties of the Silk Road. The prosecution argued that six people died as a result of drugs purchased from the Silk Road. Two 16-year-olds who died after taking fake LSD, three overdoses, and one death from medical conditions aggravated by drugs bought off the Silk Road. Ross argued that he was framed. He said there were multiple DPRs running the site, like the name suggested. He sold the site early on in its history, and then just before he was arrested, the old DPR convinced him to buy back the site. That left all the hitman evidence in Ross's lap, making him the fall guy. Do you think it was just him at the end of the day? No, I don't. Do I, I don't. I, I would like to see what evidence there is for it because like that it is only him because there is a possibility that there were multiple people. And, and I believe he claims that there was like three other people that operated DPR, the DPR account. Maybe that maybe. I mean, I don't know. But that's the thing is like. I'd have to like I'd have to like see the logs and stuff and see where you know where these accounts are being logged in from but I just I have a hard time imagining because if you think about the sheer amount of work that Ross would have had to put into I mean he still lived his life right right it's not like as far as we know he wasn't like holed up inside of a house 24 7 at his computer and but never saw like his, never saw his yeah he was I mean, his girlfriend was explaining how she was pissed that he's like always on his computer but yeah but he still like saw his family he still did things he traveled so it wasn't wasn't like he was the only he was the only admin like well, there was other maybe. admins and there had to have been other people that that controlled the dpr account there just had to be that just be so much responsibility for one why would he put that on himself yeah, that's true. Maybe that's, I mean, that is why he chose the name, so. And he had to have known that, like, that would be a great defense mechanism for him. Like, mm-hmm. I think pe- people don't give Ross enough credit. I think there is some dumb mistakes, but at the same time, I think he did make some smart moves. And I think the DPR username in the account was one of them. And he, that there were perhaps other people that that ran that account, including those that, you know, maybe ordered those hits you know yeah 
At trial, one of Ross's friends, Richard Bates, actually testified that he'd helped Ross program the site back in 2010 and 2011. He knew about the true purpose of the site, and Ross swore on the secrecy, but there had been a hiccup in November of 2011. According to Richard, Ross's girlfriend, Julia, had told one of her friends about the website, and one night in 2011, that friend made a post on Ross's Facebook wall saying, I'm sure the authorities would be interested in your drug running site. Ross was able to get that post deleted very quickly after it had been posted, but Richard warned Ross that the site was not worth going to jail over. Ross told Richard that he couldn't shut down the site since he had sold it to someone else. So that's another interesting thing. But the strategy didn't work. The jury deliberated for four hours before returning guilty verdicts. The judge really threw the whole book and then some at Ross in terms of sentencing. The judge gave him two life sentences plus 40 years. Many people thought that the sentence was unfairly excessive. Ross's sentence was actually more than what El Chapo received, but the court admitted that the long sentence was intentional. Just for reference, El Chapo was sentenced to life in prison plus 30 years. They said that Ross was the first defendant of this kind, and they wanted to send a clear message to anyone who wanted to follow in his footsteps, basically just making an example out of him. Plus, the government was pissed that Ross was able to do what he did for as long as he did. They said he made the blueprint for using the internet to facilitate criminal transactions. Using that blueprint, other people have gone on to make more online drug markets, and the government is still struggling to stop them. As Dread Pirate Roberts, Ross was always saying that each transaction on the Silk Road was sticking it to the government, and he was right. He just might not have truly realized just how angry this would make them. So some people believe that the government would have done anything to stop DPR, even if it was shady or illegal. And as we'll see, some of these feds involved in the Silk Road takedown operation were actually highly corrupt. So we talked a lot about Agent Carl Force, the DEA guy who faked Curtis's murder and talked to DPR as knob. Well, it turns out Carl was actually a crooked cop. He and Sean Bridges, the Secret Service agent on the DEA task force, stole hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of Bitcoin from Silk Road and other Bitcoin exchanges. These thefts all took place during their Silk Road investigation. Back when they were using Curtis Green as their informant, they learned from him how to move and hide Bitcoins. Sean used that knowledge in Curtis's Silk Road admin account to steal those thousands of Bitcoins. He and Carl tried to blame the theft on Curtis, which DPR also thought that Curtis stole the coins, which pushed him towards ordering the hit. But the whole time, it was really Sean and Carl. Carl also made off with $50,000 while he was posing as Knob. One day, he had told DPR that he had a guy on the inside named Kevin, and Kevin was supposedly a DEA guy who Knob paid for intel on upcoming bus and things like that. So Knob actually offered to have Kevin give intel to DPR. Of course, DPR would have to pay a fee for this, but there was no Kevin. Carl was just the one giving DPR the intel. Most of it was phony, but some of it was actually classified DEA info. So this was a bad leak for the agency. It doesn't end there. The agents actually laundered about a half a million of those profits through Panama. And at one point, Carl tried to launder the money through Venmo and Bitstamp. The two services actually froze his accounts, and Carl tried to intimidate them into unfreezing the accounts by serving them invalid subpoenas. He even created more profiles on Silk Road and used them to blackmail DPR with government intel. And through those schemes, he made at least $100,000. According to prosecutors, there's a good chance that other agents were involved with the scheme that they don't know about. So this corruption probably goes a lot deeper than we think. Sean and Carl were charged for their crimes in March of 2015, and later that year, Carl was sentenced to six and a half years in prison, and Sean was sentenced to five years and 11 months. But wait, there's more. In February of 2016, Sean Bridges was arrested again. This time, he had been caught trying to flee the country instead of serving his sentence. 
In 2020, the authorities seized almost 70,000 in Bitcoins stolen from the Silk Road. At the time of the seizure, the coins were worth over $1 billion. The thief was a hacker that the Justice Department only identified as Individual X, and it turns out there's strong evidence that this Individual X is actually Sean Bridges. How crazy is that? So wild. So Ross's family and his legion of supporters have created the Free Ross Movement, and their goal is to have Ross's conviction and sentence overturned. Curtis Green has also become a huge supporter of the Free Ross Movement, and for his part in the Silk Road and his cooperation with the DEA, he only served two days in jail. After the news broke about Carl and Sean, he understandably is pretty upset with the government. But Curtis believes that there were multiple DPRs and that Ross didn't put out a hit on him. So here's Curtis and Lynn talking about his support for Ross at a Bitcoin conference. One of the funniest things is when when I was supportive of Ross to my attorneys, they said, why are you supportive of a guy that tried to kill you? And and I, I immediately snapped back and I said, how do you know? that he tried to have me killed. You, you're just going by what the government tells you. He goes, but I still don't believe. And I said, I don't, I, I don't, I don't believe it. I, I've been given so many different versions that I can't believe anything that the government tells me. So all of it goes out the window. So the question is, and I asked you that before, is when Ross gets out, Will you be afraid for your life or at all? Absolutely not. I would, I hope one day we can get together and you know what? I bet you will become friends. I bet you and, will. And, and well, it's ironic. The people who I am afraid of are the government agents that are still in prison. Uh, Carl Force gets out next October. And trust me, I have that date written on my thing. Ross's team filed an appeal to have his life sentence overturned. They argued that not only was the sentence excessive, but the investigation was tainted by the corrupt DEA agents who stole money from the site for their own personal gain. But the judge wasn't swayed by any of this. In 2017, Ross lost his appeal and the sentence was upheld. There's been a lot of controversy, as you can imagine, on how the Silk Road server was found by the FBI. They claim that they'd found the IP address by exploiting a flaw in the website's code. Again, Ross programmed the website himself. So there had been multiple instances where hackers took advantage of these flaws to extort money from DPR. But Free Ross has argued that the server was potentially discovered using the work of the NSA, meaning Ross's Fourth Amendment right was violated, which protects people from unreasonable searches and seizures by the government. The government has obviously denied this, but Edward Snowden believes that the NSA had a huge part in discovering the server. Here's what Edward Snowden had to say about the whole thing. In the case of Ross Ulbricht, who was prosecuted for founding uh, the Silk Road website and is now effectively, uh, he's appealing it, but a life sentence. Do you assume or should we assume that the NSA was involved in uh, corroborating or gathering evidence uh, which they might have denied in the actual trial? Yes. Yep. Okay. All right. Well, that's, that was easy enough. But it seems uh, unthinkable to me that there was not an intelligence angle uh, internationally that was involved in that. I, I agree with them. Yeah. I just, I just yeah. don't see how the FBI it's pretty obvious, was right? able to to get into these servers without 
serious help from mm-hmm. the hacking group of the United States government, the NSA. Yeah. I mean, if anybody knows, Snowden, he, he knows. I don't know. I feel like if there's anybody to know about, I mean, he hacked into, you know, lots of different things and he's seen a lot of different things. So yeah, and he's very confident about that. Mm-hmm. So a huge number of influential figures, including politicians, celebrities, activists, CEOs and other dignitaries have called for Ross's release from prison. People actually thought that Trump would pardon him on his last day in office, but that never happened. So before we went over the friendly chemist murder for hire situation, we told you that the whole thing was a big scam. Well, in 2018, we found out that this was allegedly the work of a man named James Ellingson. James was a former vendor on Silk Road who ran scams not only as Lucy Drop, but also Tony76. And after getting all that money from the murder for hire hoax, he'd been sitting on thousands of bitcoins for years. But the feds caught him while he was trying to cash out on the coins. The seizures and prosecutions from the Silk Road have continued to this day. Just recently, in 2021, the Justice Department announced that they'd seized over 50,676 bitcoins from a man named James Zong. James actually stole all that bitcoin back in 2012 from the Silk Road and kept them hidden on multiple devices. At the time of his arrest, bitcoin was at its all-time highest price. So those Bitcoins were worth over $3.36 billion. When the feds were trying to track down where all the market's money went, all that Bitcoin was missing, leading to a mystery that has lasted 20 years now. Here's how James got caught. In 2019, James called the police and reported that his house was burglarized. He said that the thief had stolen a lot of Bitcoin, and the IRS's criminal investigation unit was very curious about his missing Bitcoin. Ross has been incarcerated for 10 years so far. He is now selling NFTs from prison and calling into Bitcoin conferences. His family hopes that one day he will be released. The Silk Road forever changed the online drug world. And really, it changed the offline drug world as well. Plenty of the dark net markets have popped up since the Silk Road was created and seized. They come and go frequently, but it seems like online drug markets in general are here to stay. Right. That's the thing is like seizing and taking down the Silk Road just encouraged more to pop up. Yeah. And so does it really solve the issue? You know, that's their whole thing is, oh, we got to make an example out of him and give him this. So no one will ever do it again. Tyrant sentence of life in prison when it doesn't solve the problem. It's not going to discourage people from not doing this anymore. It's going to, in fact, piss them off even more and even more marketplaces are going to come up. So it's like it's just. It's a total sham. I think ultimately it's just the government's showing force of like, you know, you try to mess with us, you try to break our laws and we're going to screw you. And that's that's what happened here, clearly. I mean, when you look at it as a whole, would you consider Ross a hero in, in some ways, like in in sort of bringing awareness to, you know, the, the war on drugs? And I mean, there was a whole documentary that was made um, by a filmmaker named Alex Winter called Deep Web. And in it, they're talking with somebody in the Baltimore police, I think, and they're talking about how these transactions, and we kind of uh, talked about this a little bit earlier, were are much safer than what goes on on the streets yeah. every day. And you know, there's murders and robberies and all sorts of violence that happens on the streets in the drug trade. But this allowed, you know, allowed people to circumvent that and have relatively safe transactions all online. 
and you know it's and it obviously lends to a, the bigger issue of the war on drugs and how that's all a all a sham and a, just a money maker for you know the corporations and stuff that run private prison systems and you know the government and everything so it's kind of like uh i think he brought a lot of awareness to that issue of the war on drugs if you ask me what do you think no i completely agree um i think that especially initially his quest as you could say was you know had good intentions and he truly did believe in libertarianism and less government and wanted to do something about it and i think it got pretty out of hand but it's hard to say exactly if he was a hero or not because we don't know who ordered those hits Mm -hmm. um and so like how much of it can we actually blame on ross but Overall, I think his sentence is way too harsh, and I think he should not be in prison anymore. Well, it's like it's a, he's a first-time offender, nonviolent offense. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, because he wasn't ridiculous. he wasn't on trial for the murder for hire charges because that ended up being a scam. And, and I come back to the government agents that are also corrupt in a part of this deal that were a part of the investigation and a part of gathering evidence. And the fact that we still haven't seen evidence for how the FBI actually obtained the this, the IP address, and I mean, I think there's, I think there's a lot of things that are under wraps that they've been trying to bring forward of how this all went down, and even the way that he was arrested was not protocol for things, and it's just there was a the government really had to like, you know, cross some lines to to make this all all go down. So in the end, is that is that violating his constitutional rights? And it sure seems like it. And that's what the whole free Ross movement's about is like yeah. he was and there's tons of celebrities and and uh, to lawyers, to politicians. I mean, there's all sorts of very notable um, people that agree with this, that his rights were violated and he did not get a fair trial. I mean, I'm, I was just reading about his his trial and the judge basically threw out all of the defenses. Um, they weren't allowed to call call forward expert witnesses because my thing is like, how much did this judge actually understand what Ross was doing? Yeah, probably not. Probably not at not all. Much. Like, this is complicated stuff. So in order to actually help the judge understand what's going on, you got to call forward expert witnesses to help break down. What is Bitcoin? Does the judge even know what a Bitcoin was? You know, and so it's mm-hmm. like... Especially back my, then. My guess is that this was just like a complete steamroll by the government. And mm-hmm. they want they were like, you know drugs bad this guy's big drug dealer he's like el chapo let's let's you know which is so not even true el chapo was in my opinion way worse oh the of dude course. was like, he killed like two to three thousand people yeah to date he's responsible for like a minimum it says of seventy thousand people losing their life yeah and the fact that he got charged much harder than El Chapo. Yeah, that's absurd. Blows my fucking mind. It's absolutely ridiculous. It makes no sense because, and I and I don't know from other cases and stories I've covered that people who do far more heinous acts like rape, yeah, I mean, to you know child yeah. predation. I mean, there's sexual ex- exploitation, human trafficking. There's people that do horrific things to other humans, yeah. even kill people mm-hmm. that get less time than Ross's. So the fact that Ross has no chance of parole. He's got multiple life sentences on him. Like he is never going to get out of prison unless some, whether he's either commuted by a president or somehow an appeal goes through and he's already had two and they've been denied, but there's only so many times you can go through the appeals process. So 
And my guess is the government's not going to, there's no way the no. government's going to let him out. And no. the government's, the justice system's not going to let a president go in and commute his sentence. That's for sure. Because he's, he is an example. It's, it's a show of force by the government saying, you mess with us. You try yeah. to mess with, you know, you try to outsmart us and we're going to teach gonna, everyone else a lesson. Yeah. We're going to put you in the ground and yeah. it doesn't. And it's just like, for what? Because he created a website. Like, did yep. he actually sell, you know, other than the shrooms that he sold at the very beginning, mm -hmm. what other crimes did he, did he do other than being an admin on this website? Yeah, that's the thing. The lack of evidence here. Where's the, the evidence? Where's know? the evidence that, how to prove to us that he wasn't the only one operating yeah. the Dread Pirate Roberts account? And they can't. The, and he even said, he, he said multiple times that he sold the site. So for all we know, maybe he actually did sell the site and he was getting royalties from all the all the transactions on it, but he wasn't even involved. He wasn't even the one controlling the account. Yeah. And therefore someone else was and he was the fall guy for it because it's easy it's easy for some anonymous guy to be like, "Oh, well Ross's identity is out there. He was the one yeah. who created it. So yeah. let's let him take the fall for it." And and I think it it lends a bigger issue to like remaining anonymous is great is great and all, but like it also creates all sorts of issues because it's so easy for scams to take place and people to pretend who they are. And I think that was something that maybe he overlooked was like, how do I know I'm actually talking to the people that I'm talking to yeah. if I'm just dealing with usernames, right? And you're going off of this total trust system where you're just trusting that that person is like you as a saint. You know, I just, I'm like, I would love to talk to Ross and like hear his side of things now in mm -hmm. hindsight of like what, what he thinks of it what it what would he've done differently what does he you know think of, oh, the, of sure the so things much. that because it's like oh man there's just there was a lot of missteps there but i mean ultimately it was the irs agent that basically got his name and that's how they were able to connect it with the whole investigation the fbi was doing but i don't know the fact that they got full access to his server that yeah. doesn't make any sense to me i wonder no. how they did that because you know this is supposed to be you know, when you're conducting an investigation, you got to do it within the parameters of the law. And it sure seems like they didn't stay within the parameters of the law. I mean, this was, I mean, we're talking about one of the most encrypted, most difficult things, cryptography and all these different things involved with, with these types of transactions and the dark net. I'm just like, they had to have had help from other agencies that were never, yeah, never even disclosed. Way. There's mm -hmm. a lot of secrecy and a lot of, I mean, you can just tell from that clip we watched that Ross's mother, I mean, they, you know, if you wanted to try to restore faith in the government, this sure didn't do it because they're like, this just creates even more distrust because it's like, you're not even being transparent in your investigation. How did you even get this information? So I, I think this thing, I think he needs a new trial, if anything. Yeah. Like, if should, you're not going to, you're not going to, you know, give him a different sentence, like, at least let him actually have a fair trial where he's actually able to call. You know his defense team's actually able to make a case for him because the judges threw all that out they're like nope nope here's the, here's the story here's how it went down and we are you are going to die in prison everything that we know about ross is that ross is seems like a great human like he seems like according to his family and everybody that knew him he's a smart guy i mean imagine all the good and it's interesting like with curtis and some of these other guys what they do in these more elaborate you know, online hacking crime syndicates and things like that is they, they get somebody and then they flip you and they make you work for the government. So it's interesting that rather than sentencing, 
Ross to life in prison, why not use him as an asset for your agencies? Why not use him as a tool for the FBI to actually take down the the people running child porn rings on right. the dark net? Like, why not use his brain power and his, he's clearly smart, he clearly knows a lot about this stuff, and why not use it for good rather than letting him rot in prison? Like, yeah, it's, no, just, not the, it's just not the place. Like, why not mm-hmm. use him as a tool such a waste. to take down other, to, yeah. the actual shit that's out there because you know what, I mean? what do we know stuff, about the yeah. government there the war on drugs is mm-hmm. insane like oh, they yeah. give a shit more about that than they do of actual disgusting mm-hmm. crimes right. and the thing is is like people are gonna do drugs no matter what and they're yeah. gonna get them no matter what so it goes back to the whole bigger argument which is probably honestly for another day of like should drugs be legal right yes why are we so pressed on making sure that drugs stay out of the hands of people when we all know that people are going to do them. And in fact, if you could lessen up on the, I guess, how strict it is, you know, to get these types of drugs, then it probably would be safer. Like we've seen from weed mm-hmm. in states where weed is legal. We're not worried about people dying as much of, you know, laced drugs or at least weed because you can go buy it and you know where it's coming from. Yeah. And just look at countries where all drugs are right. legal. Yeah, how much I think better? Like Portugal's one of them, I think, or mm-hmm. Uruguay. Or, there's a few of them out there. Well, I mean, the reason is because it takes from the government's bottom line. They're more involved in well, it. Yeah, they're, you know, they're profiting. Backed by big pharma and everything. So the police Which, are profiting, and that's so irritating because I'm like, okay, you want to talk about big pharma? Well, a lot of people who are addicted to pills is because something happened to them. They went, they got sick, they had to have surgery, yep. whatever. So the pharmaceutical industry prescribes them drugs. Right. They get hooked to drugs. And now they're addicted it's to a it and they have to go standard. find it. It's, it's a so complete fucked. double standard. It's like yeah. unless it serves the pharmaceutical companies, yeah. it's illegal. Right. Yeah. Right. You know, because until the pharmaceutical companies are manufacturing LSD and, you know, shrooms and things like that, all that's going to be this, you know, illegal substance. I mean, luckily, we're starting on the state level to see things change. Like shrooms just got decriminalized here in Colorado, which is great. Mm-hmm. And there's just some, you know, and we're actually starting to take them seriously and realizing, oh, wow, these things that we thought were so harmful, which don't get me wrong, like heroin is harmful. There yes. is no redeeming qualities to heroin. But mm-hmm. I think everybody as a human being, it is a personal freedom and liberty to be able to choose what you put in your body, just like everybody has the right to, cho- you know, women have the right to choose if they want an abortion or not. We all have these fundamental rights. It's our body. No government or governing body should tell us what to do with it. I think it's 100 percent up to you. And and by making it legal, you make it safer. You keep it out of the hands of children. You keep it, and we kill the cartels. Right. The reason, why, like, the cartels are running the world in a way because the, of the war on drugs, and because mm-hmm. it allows the governments to give you know it gives them more reasons to fund the border patrol and fund all mm-hmm. these you know all this military equipment and stuff. It just keeps the this industrial complex mm-hmm. going, and they know that, and that's that's the real reason behind it. It's not about you know, they like to, the politicians like to go on TV and be like, oh, you know, keep it out of the hands of kids. And let's be real. There is only like a handful of instances. And who knows if those can even be traced back to drugs on on the Silk Road or not of people, you know, yeah. having issues as a result of getting drugs on the Silk Road. So it's like what the Silk Road showed us is that it does create a safer environment to yeah. buy these substances the people are gonna if it's not available there they're gonna go somewhere else yeah that's and, the thing and the risk just goes up way higher because and it's more dangerous and you're dealing you, you know there's violence involved so it's like to me this this was a glaring example of how it should be 
And yeah. Ross Ross did that. And Ross and I think that was his mission from the get go. And you know what? He I think he succeeded in his mission. Obviously, he he's paying for it with his life, but I think he succeeded in, in bringing it, bringing it to the forefront of of a lot of people's minds of like this is this is messed up. This is not how it should be. And you know, I it's just it's difficult because it's like, what do you do about it? You know, you're fighting a a, a monster that you can't really do yeah. anything against. And that's how Ross's mom feels. It's like, you know, you learn the legal system, but it's like, what can you do? You know, you're, you're constrained by these systems that are in place. And, and, you know, you, there's only so much you can do before they, before it's all over and then yeah. you lose all hope. So there is a website, freeross.org. Uh, you can sign a petition there and you can kind of just keep, keep up to date with what's going on with Ross. And you can see some of the, you know, work he's doing in prison. And apparently he's a model prisoner and he's teaching, prisoners math and science and just you know there's it's just like he's not he doesn't belong there he doesn't belong to be in the same place where you know serial killers and rapists and people who commit truly heinous acts Mm -hmm. live out the rest of their days he's he could definitely come back to society and do some some great things so or like you said at least be used or be used yeah yeah, be or or pay it back if the government wants you know wants something back then have them work for you go work for the fbi for a while and help them take down their sentence or something exactly so yeah well we want to know all of your opinions on all of the topics we just discussed you know i want to know what you guys think about drugs do you think they should be legal do you think or at least decriminalized yeah yeah, or decriminalized. Um, what do you think about Ross? Do you think he should have gotten some time? Should he have gotten the sentence that he did? Or is this all just completely ridiculous? Yeah, and, I'm, and just just so everybody knows, I'm not against him not serving any time. I'm not saying he yeah. should just be completely free. I just think the life harsh. sentence is harsh. I could even see... A double life sentence? I think 40. 10 years is completely fair. Because if you look at the sentences that everybody else related to this case got was like under yeah. 10 years. Yeah. These cr- crooked cops are already out of prison. Mm-hmm. Like, what? Yeah. That's, How's that, that's how does that make any sense? Bullshit. But typical... They should be... Why not make an example out of those guys, right? Yeah. So, anyways, let us know your thoughts on this in the comments below if you're watching on YouTube. And make sure you're following us on Spotify does really help us out you can also watch the video version of the show there with all the the wonderful overlay that we put on these episodes but that is it for us today thanks again for joining us for another episode of mile higher and we will see you next time until then keep on taking your mind a mile